inadvertently, how do we bring mm. down the system? Mm. But how do we keep midwifery what it is? How do we mm. stay true to safe care? Hi, my name is Augustine Colebrook, and I'm the principal at Midwifery Wisdom Collective. I speak on this podcast about big picture, political issues, and the future of our profession. Hey, y'all. I am Jamara, and I'm a midwife. I'm also a birth justice activist. And this season, I am looking forward to sharing stories of Black midwives and the communities they serve. Hello, beloved birth community. I'm Angela Love, nurse midwife since 2004, preceptor and mother. I have a home birth practice called Midwife Love and a national telehealth practice called Midwife RX. My mission is to keep birth choices available and to educate the next generation of midwives for our daughters and grandchildren. Matriarchy now. I'm Layla Wyatt. I get to share with you the voices of student midwives from across the country and beyond. This season, we focus on those students who just graduated, are about to sit for the NARM, or did yesterday, and we get tips and tricks for you for what happens at the end of the student midwife journey. Welcome to the Midwifery Wisdom Podcast. I'm so excited to chat with you. You have such a diverse background. Like, where do we even start? Oh, <laughs> I don't know. Yes, I'm excited for you too. I, I'm, I love your podcast, and I'm, I'm still yet to really figure out how it works though in the US. Like, I don't get it. There are so many different kinds of midwives. I don't really get yeah. that. Do you get? Yeah, you're that? not alone. <laughs> There's lots of people in the US who don't get it. Like, but I don't you. You are not yeah. in the U.S., so I yeah. think maybe that's the place to start. So why don't we start with um, where you are currently, where you came from, and kind of like what your mission is. What are you doing right now? All right, cool. Yeah, so, so I'm originally Swedish, and I am currently in Sweden, but I spent the last, before this year, so I returned to Sweden last, actually, it's really funny. I left last year exactly on this day from Australia. Oh, wow. I know. Oh, wow. My friend just reminded me this morning. Yeah, so I, and I spent, um, what was it, seven, seven or eight years uh, in Australia. I have been on and off in Australia since I was 25, or sorry, 21. I'm 35 now. And so mm-hmm. it's been... It's in my second home for a long time, but I was there straight for those seven, eight years. And um, that's where I decided to become a midwife as well and, and did my training and worked and, and started, started my own business and wow. everything as well. So, but yeah, and what so side of the country were you on? Were um, you an East Coaster or a West Coaster? Yeah, I've been both. Hey, so okay. um, for the last seven to eight years, I was on the East Coast. I was mainly in Byron Bay, which is a very special yeah do you know very it? special okay, I yeah. do and do you know Tanny Paxton no I don't Tanny Paxton. Mm, she practices in that area as well she's an independent midwife mm-hmm. oh I know a lot of midwives in that area though in Byron Shire is she or just on the east coast no no I think she's just she's she's in the northern east coast but I don't know exactly what oh. town she's in anyway amazing yeah. midwife as well so oh, cool. Beautiful. I'd love to connect with her. I love connecting with midwives. Um, 
Yeah, me too. <laughs> my mission, yes. Here we are. I know, right? I do believe it's so important that we come together and also just birth workers, right? Not just midwives either, but like just birth yeah. workers who hold space for birth and for us. Because um, again, so in, in Barron Shire, where I was at, it's quite an alternative area. It's in the middle of the kind of of the East Coast. Um, and mm-hmm. so, and I have been in the north as well. I was working as a midwife up in Ely Beach in the Whit Sundays, where the um, Barrier Reef is. Or it's ah um, yeah yeah, but it's quite it's quite famous for where the uh, reef is. Anyway, back to my story. So the the Byron Shire is quite alternative. It's actually around twenty five percent of women have home births there, and there's a mm-hmm. birth center there, and almost mm-hmm. the rest of the of the area has um, has uh, birth center births and only a few go to the hospitals nearby right yeah, um, yeah, yeah which is very that's not common in Australia it's not common no you know, not at all as, you know, yeah. yeah so yeah. I was very blessed and that's one of the reasons I did decide to become a midwife when I ended up living there because of that reason I, I could walk yeah. alongside home birth midwives for my training I could I was in the birth center um for most of my practice and and that's the way I wanted to practice. I never, ever wanted to be in the hospital. And I, I couldn't stand, to be honest, to be a midwife in the hospital. I just, I don't, I don't, I've never liked hospitals. It's just who I am. So I'm a home yeah. birth kind of gal. And I, yeah. I do appreciate birth center births. But like, if I can choose, it's definitely in the home. That's where I love to be. I love that. And now you've gone back to Sweden. Um, yeah, tell so me, that's... tell me a little more about like, what brought you back and what, what are you hoping to accomplish with midwifery now that you're back? Yeah, so that was a curveball. <laughs> like most of the world, you know, with the pandemic, um, it just became so clear that I was way too far away from my blood family. Like my mother, my father, you know, they get older. Um, you know, just things happening in my family back home here that I just felt when I was stuck in Australia, because Australia was very, very very yeah. hard in there did you know like, I was struck in Australia during the pandemic no, no. yeah <laughs> I was stuck in Perth oh goodness me yeah yeah so I was in Timor-Leste a small Pacific island north of Australia helping to uh, try to establish a new clinic there I had been in Papua and I couldn't go back to Papua when the pandemic hit because that's even more rustic. You know, you have to have a guard at all times. And I couldn't get back into Indonesia in Bali where I had friends and, and colleagues. I couldn't go on to Thailand where I was intending to go because it was like three months before I was supposed to be there. I don't have a home in the U.S. And so I was like, well, if the shit hits the fan, you have to be able to speak the language. So um, <laughs> Australia is the nearest English speaking language country. I guess I better just hop a plane to Australia. I'll sit it out for a month. You know, that oh was my, my idea. God. Yeah, no. Then I, I was the last plan, plane to land before they closed the borders. Ooh, lucky. Six hours before they closed the borders. And then they were closed, like hard closed. Like nobody seems to understand how crazy it was. Like crazy. Not only could people not get in, but you couldn't leave. There were like legitimately zero flights. You couldn't go anywhere. And I was there for six months. So I know exactly <laughs> what that lockdown was like. <laughs> yes. Oh my goodness. I mean, and now I'm yeah. so curious. Like, what did you do for six months in Paris? 
I mean, I actually, I, so I lived there uh, for a while, but that was in my early 20s in Fremantle. So you would know Fremantle. Oh, I know exactly where Fre- mm. Fremantle is. Uh, it's amazing. It's, uh, it's, I spent a lot of time walking the beach <laughs> near Fremantle. Yeah. yeah, no, it was it was really hairy in the beginning because I landed with this idea of like, I'll meet up with this one friend I knew on the entire continent. And <laughs> he he jumped a plane to Thailand the day I landed without telling me like a little bit, not really mentally there, but anyway, um, I had an Airbnb and I stayed there and then my seven days came up, you know, cause I had just rented a week's worth and they wouldn't extend because I was a foreigner. And then, so I kept booking with other Airbnbs and then they would cancel because the system would automatically let you book. And then the person would say no. And Airbnb takes like seven or eight days to get your funds back. So I ended up going through thousands of dollars trying to find a place to stay and then ended up not with any place to stay. So I actually slept at the beach (laughs) for two nights before I could find a place. It was so crazy. Like there are moments where I really felt like I was like on the edge of the earth because, you know, I was 10,000 miles from anyone I knew and, and had no place, like literally no place to stay. Um, and, and, uh, I don't know, like the fear took over, you know, like people wouldn't even really engage in conversation. Like they were just panicked wow. thanks to the media mongering. Um, yes. And so this one of the Airbnb ladies messaged me and she was like, I don't know what to say. Like I, seven people have booked the same room, but you can stay like on the patio if you want. And I was like, okay. So oh I like randomly got to sleep in this, ladies like space um like her back patio covered patio she like brought me blankets and she like did the whole social distance she like left them out there and like told me how to get it was very and this is like complete stranger and so while I was there using her wi-fi because of course I didn't have an Australian sim you know I was just like I was completely abandoned like totally 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 stranded and I messaged um like my Facebook community like I'm in Perth does anyone know anyone in Perth like I need help and a friend in Connecticut knew a friend in New York who knew someone in California, who knew someone in Melbourne, who knew someone in like, and it just trickled down until like this lady knew somebody who she was going to school with, who was going to go stay with her family and had a house that she needed house sitting. And then wow. the sis, ex-sister-in-law, cousin, somebody from an old school friend in high school found um, a second car I could use. And so within a matter of a very short few days, it was a chaotic few days. I had like a house and a car and a cat and a circle of friends, but it like, like just happened. Like it was so crazy. So I ended up finding out. So the lady who's was like the house or like the, the schoolmate of a friend of a friend of a friend, she was going out of town to be with her family. And she was like, just so that you're safe, I'm going to give you the name and number of the landlord in case you need anything because I'm a renter. And I was like, okay, great. So she gives me the name of the landlord and the email she wrote down was the art of birth. And my email is art of birthing. And I was like, wait, is this correct? And she was like, yeah, that's Narafia. I don't know if you know Naraf, but she's a she's a home birth midwife in Perth. So I ended up staying in the house owned by a home birth midwife by complete accident. (laughs) We ended up, we ended up becoming really, really good friends and, and, uh, hung out really kind of constantly. And then I ended up starting teaching workshops while I was there for midwives and 
<laughs> holding women's gatherings and like it became this whole I got this whole community you know but but initially it was really crazy so yeah I know what Australia's lockdown was like it was psycho and and yeah. I mean no offense to any of the Australians out there but Australian government is was I know they just elected a new PM but was incredibly incredibly um big brother like we have surveillance cameras oh, and like trackings oh, of humans scary. and it's, oh, it's very scary, scary very Ooh. scary not not oh, the kind of world I want to live in yeah but no. but let's go back to you because I I hijacked that story <laughs> I love that though I mean yes I mean it, it was crazy. I was very fortunate because I was in Barron and Barron didn't really buy into the fear mongering. I mean, <laughs> it's a very, it's an old hippie kind of colony. Yeah, I've heard it. Like the, yeah. So it's like all these artists and alternative people and very kind of, you know, self-sustained group of people. So the community, most of them, um, we, we were kind of all isolated about a month, the first month before we knew what this, what this was. And then and then we wasn't really because there weren't, and also like we, there weren't a lot of um, COVID around. So, yeah, uh, you know, I did have most of that year I was, and then I was even traveling between states to Queensland uh, when they opened the borders and stuff. And so yeah. I actually, I wasn't much touched about, you know, for that, for the whole time, I was very lucky. Um, but I know that if you were in a big city like Perth, Sydney or Melbourne, um, you it's did crazy. not have a fun two years you were really really struggling inside lockdown yeah it was crazy <laughs> yes <laughs> we're not here to talk about COVID oh my god no it's funny though how you how you always get back to that conversation because it's just so much yeah. in our collective consciousness isn't it like there's a trauma well, there for us everything like, yes. yeah it changed it. everything yeah yeah it did. yeah yeah so yeah for and me, I think for those of us that were like in such different environments like you know, I mean, and this is, I mean, we're, we're going off topic again, but this is part of like, I think the, the bigger global conversation we need to have about the pandemic is that, um, again, it was entirely centering a, a certain type of the population and discounting the rest of the population. Um, you know, like all of these orders, like stay home, that only works if you have a home to stay in, Yeah. you know? And, and I mean, I just, I was, you know, I'm, I'm, I was homeless by choice, uh, which is very different than, than being homeless without having that um, independence and autonomy. But like, I got to experience firsthand in a very small way, the, the real devastation that was, was a part of the, the homeless population, the less fortunate, the low resource um, and they're still suffering. And I, I think they suffer disproportionately. And I think that's just not been a part of the global conversation. Um, or all the mental health or all the spike in suicide. Exactly. Or just a horrible exactly. experience for women birthing in hospitals. Or, I mean, we can go on like. Yeah, it was ooh. really devastating. Yeah. I think the evidence is still coming out about whether the lockdown measures were more damaging than the actual um I'm pretty you know, sure it was, disease for sure. and I yeah. I think it it deserves it deserves the question it deserves the conversation but it was a particularly disorienting time for people like mm -hmm. you and I who were not at home like yeah. there, there was like I had a built a community you had a community mm -hmm. but there's something so disorienting about the pandemic in general but then about being completely displaced during the pandemic um mm -hmm. that I think it's hard to even it's hard to 
to verbalize. And so like any chance we do get these moments to like connect, I think it pops up, you know, it bubbles up because it does. And it's going to take, it's going to take a long time for us to process this. And we don't really have the chance because it's just escalating in the world with different new things, doesn't it all the time. So it's like, we don't even have time to process what just happened. Um, media is really good at that too, isn't it? To, to divide us and all that. Well, and that's, that's why I love the definition of compound trauma right yeah that's that's what compound trauma is is that it just stacks so yeah yeah, these conversations help us unpack it yeah definitely and like just coming together understanding that we're all one like we're all human beings we all share the same core in a sense of like just wanting to be loved to be safe you know to be sovereign in our decision making to be free Mm. like those are the human values that we all have whoever we are in the world and when we realize that we're more alike than not then maybe we can talk about these hard things that are currently going on in the world um that we just don't seem to see eye to eye on and why can't we just all yeah conversation yeah yeah the 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 open-mindedness, the discourse, the willing to hear other opinions. I think that's that's the the format. Well so tell me you were in Byron Bay it was fairly um um, protected, uh, but something made you come home. Tell me more about what made you come back. Well, I guess, well, first of all, I had a very strong, um, intuition telling me that I should April, 2021. So, you know, I'd been, oh yeah, I'd been almost a year then, hadn't it? Yeah. Uh, of COVID. And at that point we didn't know when the borders were going to open. Um, like, for travel and I mean the and the government as mentioned was getting scary the discourse was getting scary to me just a lot of things that were scary and it had been scary for over a year I knew already in August 2020 that like oh my god this is scary what they're doing down in Melbourne and Sydney how they're treating the people it was just a lot of scary stuff going on with the military and um, police. Oh, the videos and, that came out of like yeah. abducting people was so extreme. Oh, oh it was gosh. so extreme. And, you know, kind of the COVID camps were building, they were building them yeah. all over the shop. And anyway, it was just a bit of, you know, scary um, seeing it from that lens of going like, this is government abuse. Like, this is not okay. And I mean, yes, as you say, I have have built my life there I had a thriving uh, community business you know beautiful um, friends and community and I loved Australia I do I love Australia very much it's my second home for sure and I'll be returning for sure Um, but then also things happening my own family back home and uh, here and I just felt like I needed to make a choice but I also got a very strong intuition so actually I got this very strong intuition already 2019 that I wanted to leave the hospital system so I did uh, I also felt that I needed to go rural I needed to go um bush and I needed to grow my own food be self-sufficient I didn't know why I just had this really strong and I was like in an apartment having a beautiful view over the ocean I was working you know yeah. in the hospital um was not living rural and I was like oh you know but that had a strong anyway so I I just literally this happens in my life right I have these feelings and then I just it just happens so what happened was and now I'm like backtracking a few years before actually getting Please. to your question, but this is how it happened. So I just had a day at work where I just like, okay, enough is enough. Enough is enough. I just had enough with the system and with 
because you know how frustrating it is to work in a system that you know the evidence, you know what's best care, um, you are so woman-centered and you're so holistic in your care and you're in a system that wants you to tick boxes and want to use um, old school methods because the thing is that people don't realize and probably your audience does but evidence doesn't come into practice for another 30 years you're in the system doing things that you know it's not evidence-based you do it like and you're trying to educate women but it's like too late they're coming in labor and you're like I wish I had you know helped you months years ago to understand your body your vagina your amazing womb how birth works not you know you come in so many of them afraid and just want you know want you to save them and you just wish you had more time so anyway had enough with my boss had enough with the system and I just literally just went I'm resigning today and I had two weeks notice um and there I was I was like okay what do I do because I knew I wanted to work with home birth but also I wanted to educate so I started the spiritual midwife which is what I do today and I did my I started doing online courses and see I'm not a techie person and I had said literally to my best friend who was doing a bit of online stuff literally probably two months before I could never do that that scares me I'm, I'm quite um I'm, I carry a bit of the witch wound of like I, I'm a bit afraid of getting seen of being heard of speaking up of, of using my voice in a really big public forum I was like, oh god that scares the shit out of me <laughs> And what I did was literally the next week create my the natural birth course. And there I went <laughs> creating awesome. an online business. So that just happened by itself. And then literally COVID happened. And then all I could do was be online, really. Yeah. I mean, I did do I, I did continue attending home births. Um, but yeah, because I'm also a women's work facilitator. Like so for the last 10, 15 years, I'm a yoga teacher, a coach, and a mentor and a women's work facilitator so I've yeah spent most of the years before becoming a midwife and during those years as well and now holding women's circles holding retreats and workshop spaces for women and um, claiming you know their feminine essence uh, their understanding about their sexuality about um, their blood you know blood rights um, reclaiming um our cycle and understanding how we can live with a cycle so I'm very passionate about everything woman really so birth was just an extension of that pregnancy birth and beyond it was an extension okay. of what I already was doing and was very passionate about for me I've always been very political ever since I was a little kid um I was very I was studying human rights before that in uni when I was younger and I was, I'm very passionate about women's rights and women claiming their place in the world really so all I do is from that lens of like how can we empower each other how can we um, stop playing small and I feel like birth and I've watched this and I know you know what I mean like watching a woman especially in physiological natural birth space like the magic that happens in that space her hormones like we all get high from the oxytocin in the room it's just this powerful palpable experience and her eyes are glowing and a lot of them that I've witnessed are going like instantly I want to do this again I have to do this again oh my god this was amazing <laughs> and you know and most women I because I also have a podcast and I would love to have you on one day that's called the natural birth podcast where I interview women from around the world about their natural physiological empowering positive natural birth stories and most of them will say like you know, I knew that 
after I did this, I can do anything. And we need those women in the world. We need women who are like fearless lioness because when you go through birth, you become one. And I would say, mm -hmm. even if you do have a traumatic experience or you weren't having that physiological birth or you weren't having that instantaneous feeling of empowerment, you know, trauma can bring us there too. Working through mm -hmm. our darkness, working through things that happened to us or through us, whether that was chosen or not, we can switch that. I do that too. I work with women a lot with healing birth trauma. How can I see like, who did I become through that trauma? Because the, when we go through our depth, whatever that is in, you know, in life, we can access something much deeper within us, both for ourselves, but also for our world, because we can then hold space for that in others. And that is power. And I think that yeah. whether you had, you know, a positive and power experience or not, you can turn it into that. It's how we, how we can reframe things in our mind, how we can also pick out the gems and pearls of wisdoms from that experience that make it empowering and we can turn it around for sure. Yeah, it's the ultimate hero's journey. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't know if you study Joseph Campbell's work, but um, it's- I know a, of it, I haven't studied yeah. it in depth, but I know, yes. Yeah, it's a framework for, for this archaeological, Typeful journey, you know, this, this birthing of ourselves um, through the process. And, and you're right. I think adversity almost can teach more. Yes. Adversity can transform more. And I think this is maybe a shadow side of birth that we don't talk about very much. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I agree with you entirely. I think the, the normal physiologic birth experience is in itself entirely transformative. The hormones the process, the, the, the shifting of all the parts of our being to let a new human through is, is transformative 100%. And for everyone that witnesses it. And that, that is you know, why it's a rite of passage. It's a magical experience. But, but I agree with you. I think that um, preparing for birth, we actually, we do people a disservice when we don't help them prepare for Oh, any yes. possibility, which, which could include, um, you know, an unwished for experience, a, a birth scenario or a birth outcome that we, we weren't hoping for. Um, and uh, I think uh, being prepared for the uh, unexpected, um, the unwished for um, is one of the greatest skills that we can impart. And then, and then of course, how to process it. I, I agree entirely. Adversity is, is the great teacher. Yeah, sure. it is. And it's a part of life, you know, for some yeah. women, yeah. it's a part of their birth journey. And for some, yeah. it's not, it's, it might be in their parenting journey. It might be in their maidenhood. or in their Yeah. I always bodies. say that. I say some yeah. part of the process is going to be impossible. That is how it's made. So getting pregnant, staying pregnant, yeah. you know, preterm labor, the labor mm. itself, the delivery, the postpartum, the breastfeeding, somewhere in there, you have a hero's journey. Every person does. That's, that's what takes us through the process. Yes, mm. for sure. And it's so, I think we live in a society where we just want to take a pill for everything and like avoid <laughs> uncomfortable feelings. Um, and our whole society is like showing us that that's okay. And we should do that. Like we should just numb out with TV, with food, with whatever drug you choose. Right. 
and not feel and sit in the uncomfortableness of feeling whatever we're feeling. And, but yeah. that's where the wisdom is when we, when we dare to do that. And, you know, if you've never done that and sitting in that can be excruciating in the beginning, it might take some time, but when you go through it, you find yourself like that's where you are. And actually when you land in that, there's this really calm, comfortable, just knowing of like, I'm fine. Like in this moment, I yeah. am fine. Every moment, every present moment, I am fine. And things can happen yeah. around me. Um, but most of the time, it's not the present that's traumatic or scary or uncomfortable. It's like the past or the future that we keep reliving when we're, you know, not numbing out. Yeah. And, and it's like, I, I mean, I feel like we're at that place because there are so few initiated people, yeah. if you know what I mean. In traditional societies, there were multiple ways for, in, for there to be initiations, but we have like, you know, uninitiated everywhere. And so birth is oftentimes the first time people who choose yeah. to birth normally or attempt to birth normally, that's sometimes the very first time they go through any kind of an initiation. Um, and it is completely shocking if you didn't grow up with the mindset that there are trials and tribulations and like, yeah. it's not what happens to you. It's how you react to what happens. You know, like if you don't get trained in that method in the very beginning, like, whoo, that birth is intense, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's like, that's how I really see myself now. Um, I, I, um, I initiate, you know, I, um, I facilitate. Um, and I think that to me is a better definition of midwifery for me. Totally. Um, and and in the preparation is a huge part of the yeah. process, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And that's what you're doing now, right? That's the main focus of your work. That is too, my, right? yeah, it's kind yeah. of my main focus. I love that. So yeah, I have two, two online courses that women can take the natural birth course that really is there to optimize your chances of having a physiological birth. And it really goes into depth with the preparation of long before, like in the early pregnancy or beyond, like you can even start it earlier, but it's talking a lot about how to rewire the subconscious mind, you know, how to deal with fears, so how to really actually dare to face them and talk about them, prepare for them, put strategies in place. Like it works really with the preparation before even talking about like, you know, what is labor and birth and phases and like how you can optimize that, but like really get to the core where so many women put their head in the sand. You know, a lot of women, especially maybe if you also are in the spiritual community or like attorney, like you don't want to, if we look at your fears because you don't want to manifest them but you know what I mean though but like that's so, not a thing but yeah, yeah I know exactly it's they really say that important yeah. to talk about it though and I do I, yeah. I 100% believe in the power of the mind and like affirmations visualizations and how that can really aid you and I've seen that in the birth space and with women but I also think it's really important to talk about their fears and work through them because otherwise they will show up at the birth altar and I've seen that many a times and I think you have too right so we need that we need to speak of them we need to go like okay so I'm scared of this and this and how can I then put strategies in place like is it common fear what happens if you know one of the most common ones that we know right 
it's like pooping in labor, right? Which is a, you can think it's a silly one, but it's a fear that a lot of women have because we're not, we're not used to defecating in public. Like that's, we've taught that from very early on. That's a shameful thing. And it's very like deep into our core. And so like, let's look at that, right? Like, first of all, as midwives, if we see a bit of poo, we're like, Ooh, yeah. You know, what's going on here, right? So that makes us happy. That's a weird conditioning, but we think that's great. And like, so to know that we, you know, we we very gently like you might not even notice like we'll take that away somehow we'll like we'll facilitate that for us it's a no-brainer like if you vomit we do a happy dance behind your back like we're happy when stuff like that happens that you think is embarrassing like and if we talk about it we take away the edge now this is like a simple fear this you know fears that are kind of scary maybe baby can't breathe or bleed or whatever but whatever you know we need to talk about it because when and we do we take away some of the, the energy Absolutely. around it Absolutely. In fact, I always say that, um, you know, a fear in the dark only grows bigger. A fear in the light mm. can be seen, can be dissected, you know. So I, I have always really been a fan of uh, Pam England's birth safari method. I don't know if you heard or read about this. <laughs> yeah, um, talk, talk about it. How, uh, but I, she recommends birth that safari, we, I love it. Yeah, we take, um, we take all of our pregnant moms on a birth tiger safari. So we look for birth tigers. And the idea is that a birth tiger is like what the ancient pre-human Lucy would have, would have seen if she were laboring in the jungle, right? So this idea that if you even think you see a tiger, your labor will stop so yeah. that you can get somewhere safe. That's what, yeah. that's what the adrenaline oxytocin workout thing happens. So if, you, if you're afraid in labor, you won't have a productive labor because you're not safe. You have to be safe to birth. That's like a foundational yeah. piece. And so before we're in labor, we take these moms through um, a process where they can hunt for, in the safety of our vehicle, all the birth tigers. So we go on this safari and we look mm. for all of them. And you name them. Um, this birth tiger is about mm. pooping in labor. This birth tiger is mm. about the fear of the baby not breathing. This birth tiger is mm. the fear my, my husband won't show up for me and so on and so forth. Um, and then we go through this process saying, does this, does this tiger need to just be free? It's not really a fear. Does this tiger need to be caged? It's actually a really big fear. And we need to build bars around it not happening. Or is this birth tiger actually really a kitty cat and we can befriend and tame this tiger, right? It's not, it's, it's a part of all labor, like pooping in labor is a kitty cat. It's going to happen. It's rubs up against you. It's a part of your life. And it's really not as scary as you're making it out to be. Um, and I think that this, using this like actual method to conquer something that's sort of ethereal and not really describable, to really have a method to get through to that, like it sounds like you're doing the same thing um, in different language, it's, it's really powerful. And it's, it's palpable for these mothers. I do, I do art around it and I do this whole exploration process around it. And it, it's really palpable the relief that comes from seeing them for what they are and the few tigers that really need to be caged like they are really dangerous we can spend our time on that we can say okay so you did have these abnormal pregnancy tests you do have this increased risk what are all the things that we're doing to reduce that from happening and then the final stage of this birth tiger safari is imagining um, that that thing that you're worrying about actually happens. Mm. And then what resources are you going to call on? Then who yeah. will you lead on to help you? How will you get through even that? And that's that adversity training that we started talking about, which I think is so powerful. 
Exactly. I, it's, it sounds very similar to how I work as well. Yeah, we're yeah. very. Uh, I didn't know about the safari. I don't use safari as a word, obviously, but I didn't know about this technique. It's funny. Um, but that's the thing, though, isn't like we have the knowledge about how we need to do. Yeah, yeah to prepare. I think this is a key thing that I wish um, I wish was more commonly known um, because a lot of you know, as you know, like a lot of women will probably come in in the third trimester and want to do a childbirth education course. And maybe they do the hospital one, which is very, very basic. If I, I don't know if you have that in the States, but oh, yeah. both in Australia and Sweden. We call it patient training. Oh my God. How horrible. <laughs> it makes you into a patient. Oh my goodness. Yeah. No, that's, yeah. that's the what it's basically how to be a good patient yeah it's not yeah no it's not and it's like it's the same in Australia and Sweden that you know it's basically like just a little bit about labor and birth process and then about the epidural and the different drugs and the different interventions that can happen and all that so yeah I really encourage all women um to always take an independent birth class whatever that looks like for you if you if you want to be in person online whatever it looks like but do it um Something where the person teaching it mm. is not employed by the institution you're birthing at. Very important. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, I agree. I think that's so important. And I think it's, it makes such a huge difference um, in outcomes. Let's um, let's switch gears now because you have a very unique uh, situation of having kind of in-depth knowledge of several countries Um, And I would like to sort of pose it a question and have you answer it based on your experience. My sense um, of being an international midwife and traveling and working in different environments, um, my sense is that um, Western countries especially do not have enough midwives to meet the needs and the demands. Yes. And that the ones that they do have are becoming increasingly more academicized, Mm -hmm. increasingly Mm -hmm. more focused on dotting I's and crossing T's and actually spending more time um, conducting studies, writing papers or involved in some kind of the, the academic side of midwifery. And there are less, fewer and fewer midwives who are actually in the trenches doing the work, learning by experience. Is that your sense as well? Well, both like, yes, definitely. And I, I do see the value in that because I see how when, when midwives do that, the profession, um, because we live in that masculine hierarchical old school paradigm still in a sense, it's shifting, but it's still there. So all the things that we know help women by experience and anecdotal evidence it's not taken seriously and we're living in a world where everyone almost goes to hospital where everything's everything's supposed to be evidence-based right so even though we know things <laughs> the obvious things just because they're obvious doesn't seem to make it happen in the hospital the opposite is happening isn't it generally and so I do think it's there's a place for that and I think it's really important that there are women midwives who choose to um, do the studies for the benefit of all and for the profession. What I do agree with very much though, is that, oh my God, it's terrible here in Sweden. I'll tell you about it in a minute, but you know, most of my time I've spent as a midwife in Australia, obviously. So I know that much deeper. I didn't become a midwife in Sweden. So I don't know it as deep, even though I'm from Sweden. And now this past year, I've definitely come (laughs) 
to understand the, the catastrophic situation in Sweden. However, in Australia, um, there's definitely, you know, my training was a direct entry midwifery training at three years at uni. Um, that's fairly new. I think it's only been um, when I started maybe going on for maybe 10 years or something. So it's fairly new. Before that, it's what it's like in Sweden, which is you first become a nurse and then you specialize to become a midwife, right? And that's still how it is in Sweden. But in many other countries, it's changed or has always been different options. In Australia, you can go direct entry, and I did. Um, and what you learn at uni is like to be superwoman-centered, holistic. You get the romanticized picture of midwifery, you know, walking alongside women. We get the history. We understand the, the you know, midwife witch burning. We understand how obstetric took over, you know, get outraged <laughs> as a student for, of how it looks. And then, but then you're hit with a big fat slap in your face when you do go out to practice because it's still there. It's not what they teach you. And so you come out equipped with the most latest evidence, you know, continuity of care and maybe free care is the best care that gives the best outcomes. But you go out there and especially in Australia, um, even though generally midwives care for you, the obstetricians rule. And there's a big practice of privately practicing obstetricians as well. And that still want to demonize midwives and home birth and birth center birth and uh you know that makes it out that birth is dangerous and they need to save all women and um and the system when you get out there you don't get to be the autonomous midwife and you're not trained in australia so i thought you were because new zealand very close by is very amazing like you go there the direct midwifery uh entry is you become an autonomous but you can be a home birth midwife instantaneously after you get all the prescribing rights you get to really learn how to suture like I we got to learn how to suture on meat and then I did do some in my mentorship but not enough for me to feel confident as a like just to go out and be like independent I needed more practice and then so the system is set up for you to go straight into hospital get scared of shitless of normal birth because you don't see it a lot in the hospital um, and just get become an obstetric nurse so it's really heartbreaking um, and this is how I've, I've heard women in Sweden, midwives, students in Sweden say the same, like, because I, I guess here you would have like the same kind of training where you really get to know the best care, which is woman centered, holistic, uh, midwifery led. But then you get out to the hospital and you don't you can't practice evidence based care anymore. You can't practice the way that you were taught because it's unfortunately it takes 30 fucking years. Excuse my language. <laughs> I mean, that was my experience from the get-go, uh, both as a student and, you know, having to work. Because in Australia, you have to work for at least, I think, three years in the hospital system full-time before you are allowed, right, to be a home birth midwife and have insurance for that. So you're not allowed before three years. And then um, you have to do continued courses because you weren't fully trained to be independent. You were trained to be a second yeah. nurse, really, right? Yeah. And yeah. so, yeah. I mean... When I was there, I was actually really shocked. I got hired by a group of hospital midwives to, to teach them suturing. And I was like, how can you be practicing in a hospital and not know how to suture? The, apparently the endorsement yeah. comes after you get licensed and you, yeah. you can't, you can't, you, you have to learn on the job is what they were telling yes. me. And then like 
pass these extra tests. That seems really scary to me. Um, and also, oh, you know, not having phlebotomy skills, not having cannulation and IV skills. Like those are kind of core and central to, to delivering safe care, especially out yeah. of the hospital. So that seems shocking to me. I know, but it's the way they control you because it's still yeah. the system that wants to control the midwives because you're a woman mostly. I mean, there's men that are amazing, but you know, it's a woman's profession and, yeah. and the obstetricians generally still are male, even though there's a lot of females, but it's that hierarchy. It's like, yeah. so yes, when you go into, um, I did get um, taught um, the rest of the skills. It was just the suturing I didn't um, have but yes may you're supposed to your first year out it's like your first like that's you're still kind of a student you looked at however I went straight out working mostly by myself because I, I went to rural so I was left by myself probably the third day and then since then I was like so I very much learned on the job uh, yeah very quickly um, however um, this is how you control the midwifery profession yeah. and keep keep women yep. down is to withhold the critical down. skills yeah. you withhold the critical yeah. skills and then say i don't know why they're not safe to practice yeah same thing's happening in the u.s i mean i mean i think it's very hard to understand the u.s but if i could sum it up it's basically there are five different provider types all within under the heading of midwifery they there are 50 different states and so you know five times 50 is the number of laws that are out there so it's it is incredibly hard to understand but it is it is very similar. There are little tiny pockets in the US where there's a certain provider type has like figured it out with their legislature and they have some protected laws, but mostly it's very much the same way that there are uh, restrictions to practice. There are hoops to jump through to get, you know, life-saving meds. There are um, oversight required, collaborative agreements required. Like there's all of these gate, gate, um, what's the word, uh, thresholds and gatekeeping at, yeah. at the knowledge, right? We're having this hoarding of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is happening from obstetrics to midwifery. And then within mm -hmm. midwifery from nurse midwifery to midwives. And then within that, you know, every other type of midwife mm -hmm. is, is, um, kind of isolated in these silos and, and there's, there's very little communication between the two and there's very little a collaboration. Um, and there's a lot of ostracization and marginalization and, and criminalization of the practice of midwifery um, yeah. all over the United States. And it's, world, it's quite disturbing yeah. the world for sure. Yeah. But I think, um, you know, we, we have such a, such a diverse, um, you know, uh, population, such a diverse uh, licensing law making process that it's like, it's particularly evident in the U.S. about how this, these, these um, silos of information, this hoarding of information, is happening kind of everywhere. Yeah, and yeah. it's it's really disturbing. It's really disturbing. I think, like you said, um, going back to the sort of the elemental history um, uh, of being targeted um, for centuries it does leave its mark and it's it's oh, yeah. um it's a subconscious influence over mm. the process yeah, yeah definitely and I think as women we carry that in our DNA like we know that it's been unsafe for thousands of years to be woman like we just carry that whether you're conscious of that or not like that does inform how we show up in the world and it's still very structural in our world but 
you know, midwives were the first ones to burn. We were the wise ones, right? Because midwives were the women who still had power over something, which was birth. And we were revered in the community because we would go to houses and, and assist families, right? And we had knowledge about the herbs and just how, how women worked, like how the magic of women, like the power, because it's a fucking power. And that's what I do feel that we're reclaiming right now, even though the turbulence is happening. And there's, it's an even worse crackdown on midwifery all over the world. And I'll share a bit about that. Like, Definitely in Australia, you see it as, you know, only training you to become an obstetric nurse. And then really, I mean, as you go into hospital, and if you, if you have the desire to be, you know, not in the hospital, even though you have, you have to go through at least those first three years from time, that leaves a mark. Like it does scare you because yeah. you only see complication. Yeah. You only see medicalization of birth. I mean, I was lucky somehow I also you know maybe also how I facilitated birth I did see a lot of physiological birth and I also my whole training I saw mostly physiological birth um, both at home and in the birth center so I had that foundation on, to stand on but it's so easily especially as a young midwife to be just become super scared and just think oh god thank god that you know the the doctor's here and you know all those things so I think it's it's a system that's setting you up not to go out to home birth and birth center births. In Australia, there are birth centers. There's actually quite a lot of them. And there is yep. now publicly funded home birth as well with a lot of hospitals. So things are happening. There's a big movement definitely happening in Australia. Um, yeah. And there are some really good midwives that are academics that have done really important work, right? So like, like Hannah Rachel Darling, Reed, right? Yeah, yeah Hannah Rachel Darling, Reed. Rachel Reed. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. yep. And others. Yep. And so those are really important. Victoria. Um, yeah. I'm thinking and, of a bunch of them. Yeah it, yeah. it is very important, but I think when, when, when the midwives who are so convicted of this tradition that they go back to school, they go back and get PhDs and master's degrees and work on the academicization piece, we lose them from daily practice. That's true. And, and there aren't very many coming to replace them. And I think this is the real crisis. Mm, like we don't yes. have enough midwives and the midwives that are being trained are being trained in a medical model. So how do we break out of that? I mean, the same is happening here in India where I, I, I live. There's a huge push to create more midwives, but they are nurse midwives and, and they are midwives in name only. They are handmaidens to the obstetric system. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. they, they don't practice independently, autonomously. They have very little scope really. Yeah. Um, and they're very uh, isolated. The f there's like some that practice very rurally, like was your experience, like good luck. You know, there's no one else here. So good luck. <laughs> and, and then any of them that practice in big hospitals are, are just obstetric nursing skill. 100%. And, and how do like, that's what I'm here is trying to, trying to place hold, trying to carve out a space where traditional with woman midwifery can bloom again, where we can have this experience of individualized, compassionate, evidence-informed care, um, you know, and how do we do that? I think that's the question I'm questioning and trying to answer. It sounds like it's the same question you're trying to answer. Yeah. Um, and it's a global question, yeah. um, but I think never more salient than in the Western countries um, who, who are in, 
in real risk of losing traditional midwifery. Like they're really at risk of losing. Oh, 100%. So this gets me to what's happening in Sweden right now, right? So please tell me. Yeah. So yeah, I didn't really uh, know how bad it was in Sweden until I got back and um, obviously got in touch with both doulas and midwives and home birth midwives and just started to uh, dip my toe into the system here, right? And so um, Sweden is in a massive crisis, just like you said, um, and it's multi-layered why. I mean, for years and years, midwives have been um, speaking of how we're so understaffed, right? That's definitely not something new, but it's getting worse and worse each year. Um, during the years, but especially during the summer months, like there is a massive crisis that midwives are not actually being able to take a full, because in Sweden we get actually like four weeks leave during the summer a lot of the times or three or like you get you get a few weeks after each other like that's really important it's become you know it's something that we just that happens in Sweden because of the unions earlier in the 1900s that like really fought for workers rights and so you know we get our five weeks a year minimum kind of off a lot of them are taken during the summer um, maybe three or four at least um and it's been like a constant thing that midwives are not able to do that because they're so understaffed. So they get called in and forced to work because it's so understaffed. And as we know, midwives are these beautiful beings that we have such a big conscious that we can't just like, like oh, you know, fuck you guys, I'm going to have my vacation. No, because, oh, oh no, my colleagues are struggling. I have to help them. And then also what's happening is it's a silent culture. And I know I've done that. I definitely, and I, I, I'm just now starting to stop because I'm so fucking outraged that we have this silence culture because we also want to protect women and families. We don't want to scare women that if they get into hospital or into the birth center, maybe there won't be enough midwives for you. Maybe it's going to be really unsafe care. And it's fucking unsafe care happening across the globe, but especially in Sweden. It's so much unsafe care because it's chronically understaffed, chronically women or midwives might be you know in labor caring for multiple women in labor running you know between um so in sweden midwives are more skilled than in australia i know maybe more skilled than most countries they're very much medicalized in that sense but they they can do a lot that the doctors do in other countries right so yeah. they are, have that role so they have actually a nurse underneath them that will be more of the carer and so midwives in sweden don't get to be midwives a lot of the times so they get to just like manage medical situations and um, yeah. so they're running between women and and in sweden they're doing a lot of unevidence-based care like which i was shocked about because sweden is known for like being so good at you know progressive but not in midwifery unfortunately it's very backwards hit very extremely i'm like shocked how backwards it is and how slow to catch up they are uh, and midwives here are really frustrated about it too and have been you know fighting so hard i've been out demonstrating the last year like there's a, a huge movement right now happening and things are slowly shifting and i'll get to that but it's come to the brink of like almost collapsing and it is i think the summer really collapsing at the moment because there's no more midwives that have skills left because they've walked out this year they've yeah. literally walked 
out. Like the hospitals have lost maybe a third, maybe more of their uh, midwives. And it's all the old ones, the all the experienced yep. ones with yep. 10, 15, 20, yep. 30 years of experience. They're walking out because they're like, this system is fucked. We are not being midwives. We're currently doing unsafe care. They've demanded change. It has not come. And so they've walked out. So many women yeah. midwives have stepped out. Most, I would say, midwives that are trained now, new midwives, do not go into the birth uh, center. Or, I mean, there's no birth centers in Sweden, sorry. Don't go into the birth suites in hospitals because they're scared shitless of um, being left alone. And they are. I mean, I was left alone in Australia, you know, in the rural hospital for sure as a new midwife. But that's not how it's supposed to be. You're supposed to have yeah. mentors and older midwives yeah. showing you the way and, and helping you. And they're not getting that here. So they don't yeah. dare to, yeah. you know, it used to yeah. be about a third that would go out into the hospital and into the birth suite. Now it's even less. And now, yeah. now when everyone knows the shit show that's going on, midwives less are wanting to be midwives as well so they're yeah. losing students it's just a very negative spiral that's happening it's very scary and the same thing them. is happening in uk with the nih and the yeah. same thing is happening in germany and the same thing is happening in italy and mm. we we have a crisis we have a crisis we desperately need more midwives i don't know the statistics in europe but in the united states 50 percent of all of the counties of the municipalities are without any obstetric services not midwives no obstetrics holy 50 percent of the counties in the united states have no obstetrical services we are hundreds of thousands of providers short to meet the Ooh. demand Oof. around the globe Wow. And at the same time, the, the, the restrictions to practice, the hoops to jump through, the legislative nightmares um, yeah. are making it less and less interesting. The school loans are going up. The professional yeah. reputation is going down. The yeah. autonomy is going down. It's like a perfect storm. Yeah. And, um, you know, we have some kind of global leaders on this. Um, but is it enough? You know, it, are, are, do we are we going to face a real crisis? Um, I think I think we're kind of in it. I think it's already yeah, happening. We're in it. And you know what? Like you said, you know, you're you know posing this question: What should we do? You know what I think? Because so what I didn't get to is that I got back. I saw the shit show. I saw the shit show happening. Um, everything in Sweden takes a really long time. It took me three months to start my business here. Three months with paperwork. It's like they don't make it easy. They don't want you to be sovereign and self-sufficient in this country. I mean, I love Sweden in many ways, but it definitely, it definitely does not um, like you when you're not a part of the system. So mm. they try their best not to make that happen or make it really hard for you. Anyways, um, so it took time for me to do that. And then I was like pondering what to do yeah, should I, because I'm registered in Australia as a midwife, right? So when you move countries, even though I'm Swedish, like I would have to do another year study and go like walk mm. into, you know, do practice in the hospital as a student now um, mm. to be able to be a Swedish midwife. And so, uh, you know, it's not something I'm jumping on because I'm not like super excited to become a student and definitely not in the shit show situation that's going on right now. And that's what become really clear. It's like, I just... So I actually in Sweden am currently like a midwife doula. Like, so I, I still attend births. I, I worked alongside a home birth registered midwife in Sweden as a team with her in a sense. 
uh, and also attended other home births with just women employing me as a midwife doula like they would have midwives that come as the medical profession right and I would be more of the space holder support for mm-hmm. birth. yeah mm-hmm. and and also in the hospitals so I've had a few clients that really wanted me to be there and assist them to have a physiological birth in a hospital system that really is not set up for you to have a physiological birth and so um that's what happened this year I I kind of stepped in and that was not a plan that just kind of happened I was asked by this home birth midwife that actually is from Italy so she's very different from the Swedish midwives that are very scared of natural birth a lot of them at home birth is still very like god that's so scary you know midwives here in Sweden are not pro that generally there's some amazing ones obviously in the system that loves it but most are scared of home birth and so she was like oh my god I can't find like other midwives to work with it's not easy it's because there's a shortage in Sweden too like there's so few home birth independent midwives and so I have a lot of knowledge about that right I've worked with that for years and that's how I was trained and I'm you know so she was very similar in our way of practice so she was like can't you just like can we just work together like just want some support like and so that's how I get, got into it. And then I just started working and then, you know, the rumors spread and I just got other gigs. <laughs> so I made my doula and that's how that happened. And I love it. Um, of course, I do miss being like the primary midwife walking alongside women beforehand and like being that one that's, yeah. Anyways, it is a difference in being a doula. It'll never be the same as like yeah. the midwife. It just... It's not the same, but I'm so my what well, so I got off track here. What I wanted to say was you said like what to do. You know what? We cannot change a broken system. I've really yeah. like that's really landed for me in the last few years. Like both being in the system and realizing like I'm just traumatizing myself here. I need to get the fuck out. Um, because you know, I definitely got P P PTSD from working in the system and having to be a, a part of trauma that I knew what's happening to women that is not necessary and uh, was wrong, you know, to have that knowledge really hurts my heart. It was just something that I just couldn't be a part of anymore. Um, we can't change this broken system. It's like Titanic. It's hitting the, it has hit the iceberg. It's sinking. What's the, what's the, you know what? When midwifery started to get regulated, I think that's where we went downhill. And because it's regulated by someone who's not a midwife it's regulated by it has been by white men of privileged power has no idea about women or or birth or anything and you we're supposed to get the take of approval from them that we are you know safe practitioners no it needs we need to claim it back and i think that this is what's happening around the world right now. It's like, it is a very turbulent time. And I think we're going to see a few years of really turbulence and scary things where the old paradigm truly is trying to like clen- clench on to the power and like oppress and, and control. But we're also seeing the opposite happen because in that, in that, you know, pressure cooker, that's where some of us will step out of the system and it's already happening. And we're going, fuck the system. We're just going to create a new on the sideline. And that means potentially, you know, breaking laws. Like I'm, I'm actually open for that because right now I feel like civil disobedience needs to happen someplace in this world where it comes to midwifery, because it's, we're traumatizing women and families and children on a, 
you know, daily basis in what's being created so far, we need to like totally just leave that system and come back to the roots of being with woman, putting the woman at the center and going like, you are the expert. I will assist you and hold space for you as you do what you are designed to do. And I also know some life saving skills that will help you if that doesn't work out. But we know that if we facilitate a space where women feel safe and she trusts her body, most of them will birth beautifully, safely, without needing anything. Yep. Or the things that they do need will be introduced in such a way that's humanistic and patient-centered so that they say, yes. yes, actually, I do want that intervention. I can see how that could help me. They make their own choices with yeah. information, with support, so that it's actually never traumatic in the first place. I mean, like, this is a thing. I work in a really hybrid environment now with nurses and doctors and midwives and um, in a hospital, and um, but we practice in the midwifery model of care. And so, I, you know, I I'm a part of quite a few inductions, um, labor management that needs all manner of pharmaceuticals because of high risk situations. And those women are not traumatized. They're not yeah. traumatized, even though they didn't get the normal physiologic birth they were hoping for, their, their body, their health history, their baby's position, whatever didn't allow it. They aren't traumatized because the information was brought to them. They were centered in the decision-making. They were still held as the sovereign decision-makers over their process mm. because we say, we're just here to support and advise you. We're not going to do it for mm. you. We're not going to make choices for you. You have mm. to live with the outcome of your choices. This is yes. your body, your birth, your baby. What would you like to do? Here's what mm. I'm concerned about. Here's what's happened before. Here's what the evidence says. Here's what's mm. going on. What do you want to do? And I think when we make uh, the birthing person the center of yes. the, the work, the center of the conversation, the center of the work, everything mm. changes. Everything changes. 100%. And of course, then, you know, true informed decision-making uh, with the option of consent and refusal. And then, you know, that humanistic touch that we're so good at mm. of, of, you know, touching kindly with respect and permission. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that changes everything, but, but breaking, you know, like I want to challenge you on this because, you know, part of me, my heart is singing when you say these things, like, yes, down with the patriarchy, Revolution. you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like part of me is really singing. Um, and then part of me um, is, is really scared. And yeah. I want to sort of name that fear because I think it's, it's a universal fear. I'm really scared for the midwives who choose to be on the front line of this fight. Yes. Because they will be taken out. Yes. And I, I don't fault them. You know, those I've always maintained those midwives who choose to break the laws, to push the boundaries, to hold the space where no one else is holding it. Mm -hmm. um, th those midwives are, are maybe the ones that will save us from our, our crisis that we're in. I mean, it's not even a crisis. It's a disaster. But but they, they will, they will take the brunt. They will yeah. lose the battle from the dominant paradigm trying to hold on to power. Mm -hmm. And I'm just terrified for them and their families. And I am terrified for the families they serve. And I'm just really afraid uh, about what this shakeup looks like. Um, and we've gone really far into the nitty gritty of like <laughs> what the revolution looks like, but I'm really afraid that um, 
if the only people willing to take that risk and be on the front lines of this fight are, and I really say this with respect, um, but real credulousness, if, if those, if the only people willing to do that are the people that don't understand the risk they're taking or don't understand the profession in general, we are doomed. I feel like we are doomed in the system we're in because I'll we're doomed in question. the system we're in hundred percent. Yeah. I'll answer your question, but I also, after that, really want to talk to you about induction because there's an epidemic there and you said because you're a part of that and there's an epidemic of of inductions there's for sure I mean that's just um another whole kettle of fish but when I say this and I don't say it lightly because I'm scared of being the birth witch because I have been I feel I and I am I am one of those people that I don't know what's wrong with me but I always (laughs) I just can't keep my mouth shut and I can't see injustice and I can't not do. So I'm one of those few percentage of the population that like acts before I think. So if someone like say someone falls in front of, you know, on the train tracks, I would be the one jumping down to save that person. And everyone would be looking. I'm that crazy person that puts myself into danger. And we are a few people in the world that are like that uh, by nature. It's just how we were born. I don't desire to be that person. I just happen to be that person. And so I've, I get myself into trouble a lot. I was never a popular midwife amongst the, um, you know, other midwives or the doctors because I would say this woman is declining this. Why is she declining this? Because I told her the options. There wasn't just one, right? And so I wouldn't be the popular midwife because I wouldn't toe the line. And because I had a conscience that told me, I had to be woman-centered and I had to be just. And this is the, you know, I'm not doing this on myself, but like the, we need these people like me. Unfortunately, I am one of them. I wish I wasn't. That dare to be burnt because that's how, women, that's how women got their right of votes, right? Back in the day, which is not long ago, unfortunately. Like that's how anything is changing is because we have people that can't stand to, live knowing they don't do something about the injustices that they are I agree seeing. I agree and I agree what 100%. I'm seeing right now is this horrible system that is traumatizing women that I was a part of because I needed to for my training but I got the hell out of it when I could because what I and, and I know there's there's some amazing women out there that are already there's so many midwives who are leaving the system but they're not leaving birthing and they are working. That's exciting. That's exciting. And this, mm. this goes back to the point I was making. Like, I agree with you. The system as it is broken beyond repair because it's based on a power over patriarchal system that devalues women as simply vessels. It is a broken system, full stop. I agree with you 100%. But here's my problem. Here's my question, concern. The ones who get it, and I, I think you and I get it. I think many of our listeners get it. I think many of those really well-meaning academic guys, midwives in the system who are using the system to prove the validity of the skills of midwifery get it. I think lots of people get it. Like, you know, Hannah Dolan's seminal work, the canary in the coal mine, you know, like it's, it, people get it. The problem is, and this is exactly what you're talking about, the bravery, the courage, the risk that it takes to be the one that speaks up 
is so great in this current polarized culture that the globe is, I mean, the globe is experiencing this polarization. It's so risky that I think only a few are speaking up. And those few are not big enough numbers yet to turn the tide. And those Mm -hmm. few are in grave danger. And honestly, Anna, I don't think this is you, but I'm just saying, you know, having my finger on the pulse globally, there are many who are speaking up, but are not trained, are not Mm. fully skilled, do not understand what they're doing. And I, in the U.S., we have a, 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 a category of birth workers now called birth keepers, um, which is these doula plus kind of folks. They're advertising as birth keepers, as birth attendants, they don't have any formal skill, formal training, which is not necessary. Like I, I was fully apprenticeship trained. I don't believe necessary that you have to be in uni to learn everything. I think yeah, actually oh, being oh, outside no. the system is very important. Very important. But they're they're learning uninitiated. They're learning with half baked information, yeah. and they don't even know the risk that they're taking. Yeah. Um, and we have a number of fetal demises and maternal demises linked to these birth outcomes. And statistically, it's being shown in Oregon and Australia, and we're seeing it in many other various places where they're not taking statistics, where we have a trackable statistical bad outcomes for these partially trained people who have good hearts. I know they have good hearts. Nobody's trying to hurt anyone, but they don't have all of the knowledge to actually be safe providers. And, or they do have the sort of harebrained craziness that you and I both have to like go out there and be in harm's way. And what it does is it sets the whole thing up for disaster. Because not only does that one family have a poor outcome, but the profession in general has another poor outcome associated with it. So we have less credibility and less less traction to be the change that we want Mm. to see. So like my question is twofold. Like certainly how do we bring Mm. down the system? Mm. But how do we keep midwifery what it is? How do we Mm. stay true to safe care balancing the use of evidence, you know, technology was invented to save lives. Like cesareans absolutely save lives. I'm alive because of a cesarean. I have helped many babies arrive here, you know, through getting them a cesarean, you know, like cesareans save lives. And yet Amnesty International is calling the U.S. a cesarean rate, a human rights epidemic because it's actually causing death now, right? The rate is so high. It's causing it. So it's about the balance We don't want to vilify any particular provider type or any particular Mm -hmm. intervention. Mm -hmm. It's about finding the balance. And so the balance, I think, is is the elusive part. It's the part the obstetric world does not have. Medicine does not have balance. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, it's the part that the half partially initiated birth keepers also don't have, they don't have balance. It's like the pendulum swinging at both ends and we need to find the middle way that, that, that place in the, in the center where the, the, the three to 5% of people who really do need help can get it. Um, and the, and the people that don't, don't get it. Like that's the Mm. question. And 
how do we bring that about? And I know you might not have an answer. <laughs> That's my big question. <laughs> I totally, yeah. I hear you and I agree. I do know what you speak of. Um, and that does um, not sit well with me either. The, um, there's, you know, I love doulas and and there should be a doula for each woman in a hospital I believe that should definitely be you know 100% birth attendant that can hold that spiritual emotional mental cultural you know all of that beautiful space but some of them are really radical in disregarding that women could need help and yes that you know birth is not innately safe it has never been innately safe most women will have a safe physiological birth if all is protected and held for her most but as you said yeah like there's a few I would say at least 10 percent in nature maybe more now because we have more uh, complications just how our lifestyle right that that yeah that, more toxins in the water yeah everything. less nutrient availability yes. and more, so yeah, probably yeah. more today maybe say 15 whatever but I would say most wouldn't need it if you know body mind and soul was prepared for birth in the right way like we talked about like the preparation is key here however yeah I can see like on Instagram some of them are really kind of getting momentum and and I do feel sad it makes me sad I saw someone posting the other day and I really like her which made me sad like just really bashing midwives being too close to the baby when it was born like touching the baby and I'm like oh my god you don't know the relationship between that mother and that midwife they might have the most caring loving friendship and she's like holding space in that way and in that moment maybe that was like what they both wanted who knows like it was just so it's so sad when they are bashing midwives because true midwives walk with women and we're so woman-centered and we love women and families and babies and we do everything to hold that beautiful space just like they do in their way and also when I see like them posting things that essentially says that nothing is ever valid like no intervention you know we know that there's definitely times where it's valid a lot of the times it's not and that's the problem that is just over medicalized that doesn't mean we don't need it and I think it's amazing that we have all this amazing knowledge and we should have that for women readily available but they don't all need it and that's where the crux is right yeah but how do we find that balance how do we bring that balance into our lives, into our practice, into the culture, into the larger uh, consciousness of, of what birth is and what it needs? Um, I think that's, that's definitely my life mission. And it, it sounds like, mm. you know, what we're, what we're all trying to find um, in our own ways, through studies, through empirical practice, through communication, like we're all trying to find balance. And um, I define um, you know, balance in many ways. Uh, but to me, it comes together where safe, uh, safety is the bottom line. And mm -hmm. I think who defines safety is the next question. And I would say, uh, the birthing person always is who defines safety for them. Um, and I think to define safety for themselves, they have to have all the information. And so, uh, you know, one of the the, the, the most rudimentary ways that I think any of us can be the revolution 
is to continue to spread information, you know, continue to share what it is, what it looks like, what it's all about. Um, because, and, and center that, that birthing person's information gathering, you know, um, making sure it's not one-sided, right? Because choice is only possible if there is, um, you know, options. And so we have to keep providing those options. I think that's, that's the most rudimentary way that we can support. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's, you know, what's happening in Sweden right now is that, I don't even know what's happening, but (laughs) there's definitely uproar, both amongst the, you know, women in general, knowing about what's going on. I mean, usually they're pregnant or have had babies that knows about it. But then like amongst midwives, you know, we've been out demonstrating and what's happening is that there is a movement towards continuity of care. Finally, Uh, there is a movement towards one midwife with one laboring woman. Finally, I mean, it's not able to happen because now a lot of midwives have walked out and not many midwives want to be midwives anymore. So a lot of unfortunately, what we're seeing is a lot of nurses without even having midwifery training have to pop yep. into the birth suites because there's no midwives. Yep. So that's currently the state, but it's moving towards continuity of care. They're moving towards having one midwife for one laboring woman. But at simultaneously, just you know, a few years ago, they closed the only birth center in Sweden, not because it was failing. It has the best records, the best outcomes, the best, um, you know, women love it, raving about it. It wasn't just making enough money. You know, because money is not made. And this is where the crux is. You can't make money off normal physiological birth. Mm, There's the problem. Yep. Yep. So everything in Sweden. This is why also there's not birth centers or a lot of home birth midwives. Because in Sweden, it's thought that you have to have a NICU where you birth. So you can't just have a small little birth center somewhere. You have to, people have to travel for sometimes hours up north, you know, where it's really rural hours to get to a hospital to birth so a lot of them birth in the freaking car on the way because that's safer than just having a home birth midwife or having a birth center close by because there's no need oh my gosh we could go on for hours it's just like it's like it's like one problem begets the next begets the next we're just in this cycle of crazy well um yeah yeah all of these are such important points uh Tell the truth, everyone. Tell the truth. Tell what birth is like and share the choices, the options. The other thing is like, how do we get the payer sources, payer sources, payer source, like how do we get profit out of maternity care? Like that is going to be, you know, that's that we'll know the system has changed when that happens. Right. Because right now Mm. in the, in the entire world, the cesarean is the most commonly performed operation. Yeah, because that's where the money is. Right now, in the entire world, the NICU makes the most money for the hospital. So, like, you know, it's this is how do we get profit off of uh, people's bodies? That's that's the number one question. I think. I guess that's where it needs that. That's where it happens. That that's why I say we can't change the system, right? We need to do it outside because we need to take back the feminine values of like care you know, just valuing women, valuing the softer qualities in society that has been shunned and looked at as weak. It's not fucking weak. 
it's strong to be <sighs> fucking kind <laughs> and care about people. The soft values are what actually makes this world a livable place and it's becoming unlivable for most of us, right? So what needs to happen is just a total shift where we, we value the softness and the kindness and the care and the slowness and all of these things that are not valued because it doesn't make money. When that happens, it will change. And I think we just need to, we need, we just need to start valuing it. And it's what you said, you know, if there's anything that anyone should take away from my conversation is that we need to stop with the cancel culture of ourselves and dare to speak yeah. up, not to, because I, I do it myself with the women I care for. Sometimes I silence myself a sense of going, I don't want to tell her how bad it is in that hospital because then when she goes in, she's going to, I'm going to, maybe I put something in her head that that makes her, because we know this the importance of safety in birthing. And so we cancel ourselves and censor. I don't want to tell her how bad it is right now outside the door where everyone's like doing chaos. I want her to feel safe in her room when she's birthing. But that's also doing women a disfavor because we're treating her like a child, that the system yes. is treating her you know, as well. Yes. So we're just perpetuating this Tell horrible, the truth. Oh, Tell yes. the truth. Tell the we're truth. We're big girls. We're big girls. We can handle it. And then we can make an informed choice going, okay, I'm choosing not to birth in that scary hospital that actually has understaffed midwives yep. and they're working on their knees. Yep. I information what is the yeah. cesarean rate what is the breastfeeding rate what is the epidural rate of all the hospitals you're considering right mm. what is the rate of, for that midwife of transfers what is her cesarean rate what is her outcome rate you know like how far are you from the hospital how often do emergencies happen what does the nih say what does the national institutes for health say like keep asking these questions find the information mm. share the information tell the truth we're yeah. big girls. We can handle it. I love that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That needs to happen amongst midwives like that. We dare to show up on social media and say like, yes, this is how fucked the system is. You can choose to go into this system, but you need protection. Bring a freaking doula or someone mm. to support you if you go into that system. Oh, man. That knows, yeah. that knows in intervention yeah. and knows the pros and cons. So if your doctor or midwife don't tell you the pros and cons, she can. Yeah. We need truth tellers. Well, mm -hmm. Anna, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you for joining me on this conversation, on this call. I hope that we get to uh, circle with you in midwifery wisdom more often because we love your, your voice and your experience and your wealth of knowledge. Thank you again. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> Till next time. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye.